Well, thank you so much, Matt, and all the worship team, and all the worshipers. It is a joy uh, to sing with a loud crowd, a full group, hearts ready to burst. And it is a joy for this moment, here in this time, to speak for the first time to this group gathered together, gathered together as one, not just Kenwood Baptist Church, not just Victor Mullen Baptist Church, but what the Lord can make, uh, one united church, covenanted and gathered together, Kenwood Baptist Church at Victor Memorial at Kenwood until next week when we're back up the road and so on. So it is good to see everyone today and to be here in the pulpit. I, I do want to go ahead and direct your attention now as we turn in the word of God uh, to Philemon. Uh, Pastor Jim last week sort of uh, let Pastor Denny have it for only making it through a few verses and then proceeded to go through 70 plus. And so I'll go ahead and just preach a whole book of the Bible. although it is the book of Philemon. Um, so I've got to give a little credit there to John Michael LaRue, actually. His, uh, uh, it's his joke. I guess he's the one salty enough to come up with something like that. Certainly not me. Well, the book of Philemon. It is good to be in the pulpit again, like I say, but what's more important is what's normal and what's exactly the same here today. It's, it's the word of God confronting the people of God to make them like the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit of God according to our Father's good plan. And that is so much the same now, and we are glad to join for that reason. What I would like to do is to read this text and then to pray together, to read it as a whole, a very unique text here as we find in the book of Scripture. Philemon is a personal letter of Paul's. That's why it's found here at the end of the personal letters. It has a personal addressee, just like, for example, Titus or Timothy, as you might find there. And yet this one also is even more, you might say, rhetorically loaded. It is uniquely offered. There is a strategy of persuasion going on here that we do not often find. It is built on a personal relationship, and there are many twists and turns that Paul will include that are almost intended to uh, catch Philemon up in the flow of it all, sometimes to leave something unsaid, but to force Philemon, in a sense, down a certain path. A wise and shrewd communicator, Paul certainly was, and in some ways we get to see it here in full force. So as I say, let's read the text together as a whole, and then we'll pray. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I, I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may promote the knowledge of all that is good and is ours in Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an ambassador, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but in accordance with your will. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh 
and to the Lord. So if you are having fellowship with me, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Lord, this is your word, and we're ready to hear it, but we also know that we can only truly be made ready by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you will now make me ready to speak, and these, your people, all of us, to hear, not just the mere human words, the words here simply as recorded on the page, but the word as it's brought to us, it is near to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit who's given us life. Lord, I do pray that in a time like this, individual personalities will recede, and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ will confront each and every one of us. Those who are believers to draw us further and further into him, more like him, as Paul asks for Philemon here even to know more and more those blessings, but also perhaps for the one in this room uh, who is not a believer in Christ, uh, who is a friend of ours, who is hearing these words, and who is perhaps hearing the gospel for the first time, that that person might see Christ as beautiful, as compelling, and as worthy of trust and love. So we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might be interested to know that now among the official religions of Australia are the Jedi. Uh, this is kind of an interesting thing that's happened here with regard to the census data. And it was just back on August 1st of this year that stories are run on the BBC and all the main news sources where there was actually a campaign undertaken to try to keep the Australian people from doing this and from making the Jedi or the Force, one of their sort of official religions. This had happened originally back in 2001 with some wags evidently in England who decided they would start a campaign and the internet's getting going and they're, they're spreading far and wide. Everyone, write on your census data that you are a follower of the Jedi and if we get enough people on the census, it'll become official religion. Of course, uh, sort of liberal democracies, maybe America or patterned after the United States of America, always have a little bit of a, a tap dance to try and figure out what are the religions that are in our land that are represented by our people, by believers, and how do we treat them, and we don't want to necessarily have the government in a position of, of sort of deciding what counts as a religion and what not. So there it is in Australia. If you get the requisite amount of people, uh, several thousands, to write what their religion is, it's now an, it's now an official religion. The atheists were quite concerned because they think all the people who are writing Jedi are probably atheists, and this affects how the Australian government spends money, and now we're going to be underrepresented by all these people who are Jedi. Now, if you're in the room here, perhaps, and you're not even a, a big fan of Star Wars or something like that, in many ways, you're the person who proves the point, right? Because you still have seen the people line up for days to go to the viewing of the movie. You've seen someone dressed up like Darth Vader, or some child might be at your doorstep this week with one of those costumes on. And we see, actually, why it's something of a joke. Because we know, in fact, that their lives are not ordered according to those Jedi principles. If you were to see the pattern of a year, the pattern of a week, if you were to look at the tax return at the end of the year in terms of what was given for charitable work, 
you would not actually see the impression of the Force or the Jedi or something actually shaping or, or, or in some way owning and possessing and animating that life. That would not affect weekly and daily patterns, do you see? If you were to go over and work maybe among Aboriginal peoples there or in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever it was, you would not think to yourself, how must I contextualize the gospel among the Jedi I will find there? Uh, in what way am I allowed to speak of discipleship of Christ as being a Padawan or something like this? That, that's not the way you would then have to think of it. But here we come to the book of Philemon, and, and it is shaping, do you see? It, it's controlling in some way, reshaping someone's life. Grace is doing this as well. It opens up precisely with the fact that grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the, the traditional wish of Paul, but it's not simply some empty wish. I hope this happens, and I hope you feel all, all grace-filled and it inspires you to do some needlepoint or something like that and put it on a, put it on a pillow. It is a true and objective wish of grace upon this person that the Holy Spirit would be given the grace of God through Christ to that individual. This person is fully possessed by grace. How is it then that their lives are then fully possessed? This is, of course, the traditional problem of, of antinomianism. If, you're, if you have a completely gracious religion, what law is left there? What is left in place to guard and to guide that pattern of life? This is how grace grows the Christian. Grace will lead us home, and we see here Philemon's life reshaped by the gospel. Precisely if you take, I guess, the word religion to the old religio root as a binding or a guiding for life. So we see at the beginning, you will never exhaust the knowledge of grace. Number one, you will never exhaust the knowledge of grace. That is clearly what is at issue here at the beginning. Paul begins clearly to identify Philemon as someone who has received grace, full stop. There is not some sense in which Philemon must then afterwards accomplish this or that, have a brief list before that. No, he is one who has received grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit. But what next? How then does his life continue? How does Paul address himself and then address Philemon towards a new situation like this where there must be some kind of change, some difference made, some progress in Christ? Do you see here, we must ask, how is it that grace shapes a life? Absence of that life-shaping power for the Jedi, which makes us to laugh a bit, we must remember what is most serious for our following the Lord Jesus, that we, as those who receive grace, must still shape and follow him, must follow in the law of Christ, must have that binding effect. And how do we do it for ourselves? How do we do it for a brother or sister? How do we even do it for someone who is lost? So Philemon's life, therefore, becomes a kind of test case a heuristic, or if you like, a, a discovery device for how grace makes a fully developed life here, how fully and deeply this gospel will work. So we see Paul now continue, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Now you, I should point out in verse 4, has switched to the singular. And so now this makes us to read verses 1 and 2, where Paul calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus, Timothy our brother, to Philemon, the beloved fellow worker, Athia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, three people. And then verse 4, you see, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Most of the time, that you is plural. It's something like y'all, you all, that kind of thing, addressing an entire church. Here it is singular. And so this is the unique way in which this is addressed to Philemon, but in a sense also a bit past Philemon or roundabout Philemon, if you like. Philemon here is the fellow worker. Aphia, our sister, most think this is his wife. 
and with good reason. Archippus, the fellow soldier, very possibly a son, an adult son, or someone else who was in some way grafted into the family, because of this here, the church in your house. That is their house. So it is likely that this is a household that is here being described. There are many letters similar to this in the ancient world. They are often called the amicus domini, as we'll talk in a while. The Latin doesn't matter, but the fact that it's a heading does matter. There are many ones like this fitting under that kind of a category. And so we find here that they are all addressed, but it's mainly Philemon, almost like when we watch the State of the Union address. The president, in some ways, is therefore addressing the gathered Congress, both the Senate and the House of Representatives, but in a way now looking past the Congress into the camera and addressing us. There is a certain sense in which when Onesimus comes, this letter might be necessary to show the reasoning, the justification. What was a private letter could therefore become public. And so we see here that Paul himself now will begin to, to show some praise even. He will use purposeful praise to spur on those less mature in Christ. He will use purposeful praise here as we read in verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the, the sharing, the, the fellowshipping of your faith may produce the knowledge of all the good that is ours in Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And you see he's going somewhere with this already. There's that undercurrent, there's that tone already happening. Uh, uh, he's going to praise him purposefully. We, we don't quite have the best word for this available in English. Encomium is what you could use. That's what the old Greeks would talk about. But you've seen it if you've watched live TV recently. If you've maybe watched a sporting event or maybe a live shot from the evening news. Maybe there was an explosion or something like that. And, and there's a building burning and they have the shots from the chopper overhead or something like this. And eventually that moment happens in the sports game, maybe where it's a blowout. And you almost have time to kill at that point. Like, well, we have 30 minutes of live television left. Or maybe perhaps that moment comes when, when the firefighters have kind of made it, where now it's all but concluded, in fact, that they're going to be able to get that blaze done. About 30 minutes left, one or two trucks, but, but it'll be done soon. At that point, the live TV host is essentially going to start heaping up purposeful praise how valiantly the firefighters, how professional they were in their response, or, or maybe talk about how the college athletics program has just been buoyed up by the new athletics director or whatever, and this is going so well, and that's going so well, and they have this game next week, and these are their prospects. Purposeful praise, and here is Paul heaping up this praise, going somewhere with it. He is in this way building up the virtues of Philemon's love for the gospel, and tacitly suppressing his vices, which naturally would give him a love for the old man. He, like all of us who are believers in Christ, are putting off the old man and putting on the new, made in the image of Christ, being renewed day by day. Paul is, in that sense, sowing to the new man and trying to cordon off the old man, in a sense, setting up the news so that Philemon is prepared, just as Paul wants him prepared, to receive it. So here we see that by affirming these facts of Philemon's true discipleship, Paul spurs on his brother and secondly prepares for his own coming appeal. He's making ready the gospel logic that Philemon will need to use upon hearing this news. That's confirmed even by the fact that Paul says in verse 8, accordingly. 
in accordance with the fact, Philemon, that you are this kind of person, in accordance with the fact that, that I know who you are and that the saints are being refreshed in you, I want this. This is what you should think. This is what should happen. Before leaving this point, we should see briefly, and many of you this week may have even felt that your work for the community of Christ, your work for him and for his people may have been a little bit mundane, may not have been exciting. Paul doesn't point to a whole lot of exciting, earth-shattering kinds of things that's going to go viral on social media here. What do you need to do to refresh the hearts of the saints? I'm sure you'd love to refresh the hearts of the saints. What do you need to do? Well, what he does here is quite simply to have love for Jesus, have love for the saints, to share or actively fellowship that faith among the people. And then the last sort of imperative he will receive in that regard, as we even see at the end, refresh my heart in Christ, verse 21, is to make his home an embassy for the gospel, make his home a place that is busy about the work of Christ. Some of you need to take some encouragement even from that. When Paul here seeks to identify true faith, grace active in the life of the believer, it's not you did a great job studying this, you did a great job doing that, publishing this, preaching that, making these things to happen. These are the basic disciplines of the Christian life to which he points the rock-solid foundation where he's pointing and saying, you are a believer, now let's move a little further. Grace will take us even farther. We also should see here that Paul then is modifying his appeal for love's sake. He modifies his appeal for love's sake. He caters it in that sense. Very often, when, when you become a believer in Christ and you seek to grow or you come to that place where you, you find yourself almost stuck for a moment, you need someone older in Christ. You, you need someone more mature in Christ to modify, in a sense, their own appeal to fit where, where you are, not where someone else is to modify that appeal for love's sake. Or perhaps for those of you who are consistently working on someone in terms of evangelism, you're setting up that appeal for the sake of love, as Paul even says here, because of love, and as he will then say again later on, I, I didn't want to do this, but for love's sake, I wanted to speak to you in this way. It's not then a one-size-fit-all. This is precisely why we are all a royal priesthood an entire group of people filled with the Holy Spirit ministering individually and on that basis to many others. I should point out very quickly, especially to those friends who are here today and might not be a believer in Christ, perhaps you're visiting for the first time, you were just drawn here, or a family member or someone brought you, some of this language gets a little bit interesting, even perhaps this right here, or at the very end where he says, yes, I want some benefit from you, refresh my heart in Christ. Of course, in a sense, he has tongue-in-cheek going on there. He's using this language of, I want something from you which is normally out of bounds in our culture, and sometimes rightfully so. Because if someone wants something from you, mostly it's going to be something like he or she is especially good looking or climbing the corporate ladder especially fast or something, and, and they want something out of that relationship. But it has a way of reducing the person to that feature, do you see? To, to the good looks or beauty, to the, to the pace of someone's employment, or to their, their bringing in money or something like that. Christian believers, friends, even here as we preach, the person maybe who invited you today, that person wants something from you. But what they want from you is just a hearing for the Lord Jesus. It's just a hearing for the gospel. And what does that say of you? When someone says, I want something from you, but it's just a hearing for the gospel, that actually says of you that you have an eternal soul of infinite value. And you do have a relationship broken with your creator, full of rebellion, 
and yet that you need to be one then who hears it. They want that from you, but it's something that speaks the most high of you in terms of your value, and the most honestly and serious of you in terms of your sin. And so in that way, even we as believers, perhaps we need to refresh some evangelists, and maybe perhaps someone you've worked on a long time. It's a good way, in a sense, to, to jar, once again, that relationship and say, this is why I, I want to appeal to you in this. The one thing I want from you is a hearing for Christ. I remember a while ago, I, had, I was out of town, couldn't preach at the uh, pancake breakfast. I was thankful for Brent Van Rokel, who came by to our evangelistic pancake breakfast and preached. And when I got back, I heard evidently that it didn't quite go so well, some, some impoliteness, a difficulty in addressing the crowd and so forth. The next week, actually, I canceled where we were. I said, we, you know how we've been going through Romans? Today we're going to 1 Thessalonians. And you may recall this section in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. I said, you have a lot of people who want to get a lot of things out of you. But last week, you had a young man give up a whole section of his life, a whole Saturday morning, and all he wanted out of you was a hearing for Jesus. I think Paul is not bashful, is not shying away from that kind of a strategy in his persuasion, nor should we. It can be a powerful way, therefore, of, on the one hand, offering the gospel to the unbeliever, or on the other hand, urging on as we do consider how to spur one another on in love and good deeds. So we heap up gospel goals when giving guidance to those who are in Christ. Further, find more treasures through further generosity, number three. Or I should say the first number three, after the next number three comes there in the nice typo. So we need a little redaction criticism right there, a little bit of correction on that, I guess. Oh, you'll have to forgive me. Find more treasures through further generosity. You'll see here, first of all, in Christ and also in the church. As Paul concludes here, he says in verse 6, all the good that is ours in Christ. And he speaks of the refreshing of the saints, which is in the church, the sort of the active verb idea there of fellowshipping it out, of having the faith one, uh, one among another, that kind of idea. Here we're in the church and in Christ are found all the blessings of the new covenant. You see how Paul is sort of loading the question. I'm getting you set up, Philemon, to learn more of all that's ours in Christ, <clears throat> even before I tell you a little bit about what's happened here. Uh, to this person who shall remain nameless for the moment. Consider the productive potential of the church gathered in all her variety. This idea of fellowshipping the faith among the church. The productive potential of all the church gathered in all her variety. It is one good thing to have in a church. People drawn from every tribe, tongue, language, nation. People drawn from every, from every class, from every place. Gathered together with productive potential among their unique gifts and ability. So he is fellowshipping his faith, refreshing the saints. And here comes Paul now, verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, some translations say ambassador, likely better here an elder, or perhaps even an old man. Uh, making this kind of an appeal, I'm an old man, perhaps. Of course, you know that word, the original word elder could be old man just in terms of age, or it could be the elder of the church, that idea. It seems far better here to go with old man because he's making an appeal of empathy right here. He's trying to make him to empathize with him, an old man and a prisoner. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I become in my imprisonment. 
One difficulty here, actually, is that the name Onesimus is actually backloaded. It's the very last word in the sentence. So he's getting as much traction, as much mileage as he can before he throws out that name for the first time. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became. Perhaps it's more jarring and meets the original bit better to say, whom I fathered in my imprisonment. Some of the commentators even try and imitate Paul's playfulness here, the, the way he's working with these words, to say something like, who's, I've had a father in my, I've fathered a child in my imprisonment, and his name is Onesimus. And the name comes very last in this verse, because it's the very last thing Paul allows out. And at that moment, a flood of memories comes back for Philemon, doesn't it? He knows what he's talking All of a sudden, right away, this is the moment where Philemon's mind is going to be busy, thinking, and yes, ready to hear the rest of what Paul says, but already, in a way, his conclusions are going to start rolling out, and yet Paul has set the table. Paul has already, in a way, sowed to the Holy Spirit, held back the old man a bit here, continued to set out the, the vision of grace in front of him. I fathered Onesimus in my old age, perhaps picking up a certain sense of Abraham who received by promise his sons, just according to the promise of Abraham now, as he read in Galatians 3 as well. There are no, those who are becoming sons and daughters of God through the promise of Abraham. Notice this funny wordplay here. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Uh, we could sort of imitate the original language here as well if you were to playfully pretend his name is Eustace for a minute. Once Eustace was useless. Now he's useful to you and to me. There's an internal chiming that Paul's using here in the words he's chosen with Onesimus, useless, and useful. And Onesimus's name means useful. It doesn't necessarily indicate that he was the, the perfect or especially useful servant. In fact, he may not have been. These were often aspirational names that were kind of given. You know, if we call him useful, maybe he will be someday. <laughs> and so Paul here is saying, hey, he's really useful now. And there's that internal time. Once Eustace was useless, now he's useful to you and to me. Do you see here he keeps it light in a way, purposefully making sure that Philemon won't get stuck in the old pattern, stay on track for the new pattern. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So we see here what's going to happen then is that proximity to God's transforming power in others challenges those already in Christ. Paul knows from the very beginning God's transforming work in Onesimus. The fact that Onesimus has now repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and is a brother in him and in the church, it is going to challenge Philemon. Philemon is a true believer, just the same. But there is enough there in terms of the whole life lived, his personal biography, the integrity of, of one year building on after the other, that this will still be hard for Philemon change the way he's thinking, to receive one who was formerly a slave, a servant, back as a brother, to begin to look at this man as someone who is different, and to think of himself as a man as someone who's different, the two of them as brothers, instead of as their relationship was formerly. And we ought to be aware that quite the same thing happens for us in this room. Proximity to God's transforming power in someone else does often challenge us. It provokes us. Sometimes with, with all that is good, sometimes with things that are bad. A sense of jealousy, 
sense of loss. Think of C.S. Lewis's old definition of humility, being rejoicing in a thing done without regard for the person who did it. And we recognize even there, this is why Paul has carefully set the table, and even why sometimes perhaps you need to do that for someone who is less mature in Christ, or someone else who's more mature in Christ might do that for you. Similar then, we should say we should receive that from others. We see here that Paul does not want to act against grace, verse 13, against Philemon's will, verse 14, or against God's hidden plan in verse 15. So verse 13, I would have been glad to, help, to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. So here Paul's saying, I didn't even have to send him back. You know what, I'm bold enough to do this and to tell you what to do, but for love's sake I'll do this, and for love's sake I'll send him back in order that your own goodwill, your own goodness might be stoked, that you might have the opportunity to have an act of grace, to show the gospel applied in your heart, in his, and even for the church that meets in your home. Paul is therefore setting up his plan, saying, I saw good gospel goals here. I saw the advancement of grace here. Quite naturally saying, and that's also the calculation you should use at this same time in order that your goodness might be of your own will. You know, you might almost think your Philemon goes, wait, my goodness? We, we were talking about that? What's my goodness? What, hold on. Hold on. What, what am I doing now? Paul clearly has loaded the question, but in quite a good way. So that Philemon would not slide back. So that Philemon would not falter in his own discipleship of Christ. Verse 15, perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What a beautiful turn of phrase there as well. This is what often we call the, the divine passive, used very often in scripture, the, the passive voice used, so we don't know who the agent was, but in the context it's pretty clear that it was God who did it, right? We've all used the passive voice since we were little kids, you know, mom, the window was broken. Oh, well, how did that happen? It was broken by the ball. Um, okay, how did that happen? And so on. And finally, finally, the child might release the knowledge of who the agent was. It, was. it was me. I'm the one who did it. And similarly here, notice Paul strategically even veils how it was that Onesimus left. Some of us even feel a little bit like we got the short end of the stick. We're like, Paul, I, I was into this. You know, how, how did he leave? What are the gory details? You know, what, what made him take off? Or what, is there some kind of concern here? Why was Paul, or excuse me, why was Onesimus taken away? But at the same time, Paul therefore leaves latent the fact that it was God. Took him away for a while so that perhaps you could have him back. Whether it was Onesimus that took him away, whether it was Philemon that sent him away, or some kind of concern, Paul clearly replaces that with the fact that it was God who had something to do there. It's a bit tough here because I, I've often tried to interpret, hearkening uh, back to Psalm 4, or Genesis 45 here, and I've never quite been able to nail it down. E even though it may not be here, the concepts are at least very, very close. There's a lot of conceptual transfer between Onesimus and between Joseph here. Perhaps he was parted from you for a while, for this very purpose. Perhaps in the divine plan, Onesimus' running away was paradoxically what would change him forever and make him the brother of his master. 
Similarly, in Genesis 45, Joseph argues that God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. So the reference isn't explicit, but the cluster of ideas is strong. A slave away from home, a transformation out of the slave status, and the hidden purposes of God combining together there to show that only providence could plan these twists and turns for the transformation of both master and slave into brothers. New creation makes far more than tolerance. New family ties. Far more merely than tolerance. It makes new family ties. Do you see how Paul says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Paul is mounting up to his peak. I think the climax is 17 and 18. But here then is that last step before the summit, right? Here is your brother. You notice it wasn't conspicuous earlier when he said, Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow worker, and no one was called brother yet. But when Onesimus gets back with this letter, there we have a sister, a brother. We have, in, in a sense, now it's all of a sudden conspicuous as we realize a brother is being added to that family. How much more to you? I'm sure Paul, or excuse me, I'm sure Philemon, you've been praying for him, right? I'm sure Philemon, this is exactly what your heart would want. Maybe not old man Philemon's heart, but certainly new man Philemon's heart. And to that, Paul points. We should point out here the place in Scripture, it should not be passed over, where slavery is addressed through the gospel. We understand certainly the way that slavery is a unique blight on our land and our personal history. It's still a blight on our globe, is it not? Is it not? As slavery in large measure today is found through patterns of sexual slavery and the like. We certainly militate against that with every ounce of our being and to the deepest possible place, to the very heart itself. It is often said in a way that, that the Bible doesn't directly address the issue of slavery. In a certain way, that could be correct as kind of an institution or something like that to say very directly something like we might find in the United States Emancipation Proclamation or something like that. But here it is as direct as possible. But what is more crucial is that the Bible directly addresses the heart of a master. Civil wars can do things like reorient political structures, but very sadly, even in our own nation's history, our problem was that the Civil War and all the rest can't correct the heart that masters other people. And the gospel can. The gospel in one fell swoop seeks to make, first of all, the heart of the master corrected and to receive the slave as a brother. Very often we think of the book of Philemon as a book about the slave, the transforming of a slave into a brother. And in some ways that's exactly correct. But I, I, I submit to you here that that is secondary, and what is primary is the miracle of making a master into a brother. And such were some of you. Even now, we fight against the heart of mastery so often, with a brother, with a sister, with a spouse even, those closest to us, when that heart of mastery comes up and takes hold. And we must repent and recognize once again that the heart of the master is addressed by the gospel. And grace leads that person home as well. New creation here is made far more than tolerance. And the Bible has confronted that heart directly. And we see here now as 17 and 18 come that we pattern decision-making after the accounting of the gospel. 
pattern decision-making after the accounting of the gospel. Paul here steps into some familiar kind of language, language about fellowship and about legal uh, kinds of ideas, but I think here we will see that it goes deeper than we even may have thought. He says, if you consider me your partner, or as perhaps should be translated, if you have fellowship with me. He already has said he has fellowship with him. He's already been talking about the fellowship with him. So he's assuming, yes, of course you do, so have fellowship with me. If you are having fellowship with me, receive him as you would receive me. Substitution, Paul Pronesimus, verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. A word here likely that should be, if he stands condemned to you. Instead of if he has wronged you at all, the, the cluster of words clearly is not just relational, you know, if he's wronged you or if there was a shouting match or something. If he stands condemned to you or owes you anything, you see that even the two words kind of holding together in more of a legal financial situation, a bit more transactional. If he stands condemned to you or owes you anything, reckon it to me. Credit it to me. It, it could seem almost a stretch or a reading of Romans 3 onto this, or Galatians 3 for that matter, onto this, to say entirely that this is Paul's justification language. But it's but it's not much less than that. He uses the language to stand, condemn. He uses the language to reckon to me or what he owes. Perhaps instead we should read it through the lens of our Lord Jesus himself. What was it in the parable of the Good Samaritan? The man falls to pray to those who come upon him on the road. He's left for dead. The very ones you would expect would help him and would take pity, do not. But it's a Samaritan who comes by, takes him, binds up his wounds, takes him to the inn, pays the innkeeper for it, and on his way back through says what? Whatever is left and needed, charge it to my account. And that is the Lord Jesus explaining the kingdom of God. Likewise, in the parable of the two debtors, or even in the parable of the unforgiving servant, how does Jesus describe the kingdom of God? Like, like a servant who's been forgiven a holy massive debt to his master. And yet later on that very day, the servant, evidently a little higher than another servant, takes him, puts him in prison for a petty sum that he could not repay. He is saying there that the kingdom of God is precisely like that. We gather together as God's people, beginning and entering in the relationship with Christ, precisely because we've had the largest conceivable debt removed from our account. If you're here today and you are not a believer, that is the gospel, that God loves you and has made a way, in fact, for you, a rebel, to be reconciled to him. As a special creation of a, of a loving creator, we want you to hear this message so that you do not continue in a life of rebellion, in a life of sin against God, when he has made a way for that sin to be removed, for that awful, crushing debt to be taken off your shoulders, put there on the Lord Jesus on the cross buried with him in his grave, and so that his new life, risen from the dead, might be yours. Do you see then how this logic for the Christian believer takes over? It is the very traction by which grace leads us home. You've been forgiven so much, Philemon. How could you not forgive him? In fact, I'll go ahead then and set out the gospel as my script, Paul says here. I'll go ahead and use that as my script and say, go ahead and credit it to me. Reckon that to me if he stands condemned before you, if he owes you something. After all, Philemon, isn't that where we have been? Paul now transforms this language 
that likely even has a literal financial kind of reference in the world into the accounting of the new creation. Verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. So he, he almost with, with urgency, with breathless urgency, he, he takes the pen from the secretary who's probably writing down everything he's saying. He takes it, gets it in his own hands, almost with his fingerprints on it. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Here I am, Philemon. Listen to me. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Not likely because he's literally in Paul's debt. Paul was a tent maker. Paul didn't own a home big enough for the church to meet in. He owes him that because Paul offered him the gospel. It was Paul that brought him the message of new life. Yes, brother, I, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. It's time for that dividend to pay off, that investment into you. I want to go ahead and call it now. Receive Onesimus. As I even work very carefully here to make sure that I am sowing to grace in your life, I'm bringing out more of the logic of grace, of the law of Christ. Refresh my heart in Christ. As I know, of course, you're already doing. As I've already said you were doing at the very beginning of the letter, refresh my heart in Christ. Keep it going. Keep having the fellowship by doing what will be hard for you as you've encountered God's transforming power. Paul employs this legal language and submits it to the pattern of the gospel. We also, therefore, must transition from earthly currency and ask the question, how do you pay for new creation? You said, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that what you will do, even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. Do you think Philemon was excited to hear about that? I, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, so you're checking in. I, you know, he's going to follow up here. Prepare a guest room for me. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to. Not entirely sure, but I'm really I'm hoping to get there. I'm pretty confident of that. And I'm sure you'll have me as your guest. Prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping, oh, through your prayers, by the way, to be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You cannot pay for new creation. That's precisely the point. Because new creation begins with the debt no one could pay. It begins with the debt that we are cleared from through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to direct your attention now to a very similar letter. This is how we will close by looking here at the back of the notes page, as some of you may have already cheated and done. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger. Pliny is somewhat famous for the fact he and his father were witness to the, Pliny the Elder, believe it or not, father of Pliny the Younger. They were witnesses to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Uh, Pliny the Elder actually didn't make it. Pliny the Younger continued on for many years, writing and so forth. And he, he's actually a very interesting writer because his, his language is especially flowery. It seems that he was intending for what he wrote to be laid down as kind of a permanent literary deposit or something like this. He's almost trying to imitate older Latin, and you'll even notice some of that language here in this letter. I just want to read it from the start to the finish very quickly. With our minds focused on the deep contrast between these two minds, between the mind of Pliny the Younger, who is himself at this point a governor, a governor in Bithynia, which you may have even heard from the Bible, is there near Galatia, a very similar overlap. He's writing shortly, very shortly after, two decades or so after, likely Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. And here he goes. The freedman of yours, Sabinianus, with whom you said you were angry, has been to me, flung himself at my feet, and clung to me as if I were you. He begged me to help with many tears, though he left a good deal unsaid. 
In short, he convinced me of his genuine penitence. I believe he's performed because he realizes he did wrong. You are angry, I know, and I know too that your anger was deserved. But mercy wins most praise when there was just cause for anger. You loved the man once, and I hope you'll love him again. But it's sufficient for the moment if you allow yourself to be appeased. You can always be angry again if he deserves it. And it will have more excuse if once you've been placated. Make some concession to his youth, his tears, and your own kind heart. And do not torment him or yourself any longer. Anger can only be a torment to your gentle self. I'm afraid you'll think I'm using pressure, not persuasion, if I add my prayers to his, but this is what I shall do. And all the more freely and fully, because I have given the man a very severe scolding and warned him firmly that I will never make such a request again. This was because he deserved a fright and is not intended for your ears. For maybe I shall make another request and obtain it, as long as there's nothing unsuitable for me to ask and you to grant. If we had only the letter of Philemon, we might even notice there that something radically different is going on. If all of a sudden this were written on the census and someone saw this, they would say, there is a new way of life being attempted by Paul, Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, Onesimus. There's something new shaping these people, shaping their lives, calling them out to a new way of living, a total and new way of life. The life of the gospel itself is summarized in the changed logic of the letter to Philemon. Let's pray. Our Lord, we seek to live this out. We know that grace has brought us safe this far. Grace will lead us home. At no point does our hope transition into works or into having some kind of new momentum. Even if it's spirit-filled momentum, we know that our hope is ever set firmly on the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to save. I pray perhaps if there's a, a man or woman even in this room today whose heart is moved desires to know more of the salvation in Christ, that today might be the day of salvation for that person. But we also know there are believers in Christ whose hearts might be moved today. Moved to do something else that was hard, to overcome patterns of the old man or woman, that old person, and put on the new man created after the image of Jesus. I pray, Lord, your gospel will be powerful in us today by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we've even seen here, Paul making his appeal. And so we ask in Jesus' name, amen.